Welcome to Frontline Church, South Oklahoma City's podcast page, where each week we will upload a new sermon uh, from our current sermon series that we're in. If you have uh, any questions, concerns, um, or have a prayer request or need, you can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com or visit our website, south.frontlinechurch.com. Thanks. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13. The word of God speaks to us. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, He is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food is really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are not worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes a brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is God's word to us. All right, you guys can have a seat. Good morning. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Aaron Addison. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at at Frontline. And... um, and for the last six months, we've kind of been slowly working through the book of 1 Corinthians. And one of the beautiful things about doing that is uh, we get to really just take a whole book of the Bible, just go through it little by little and see what God has for us in it. And one of the hard things is sometimes you run across passages, chapters, things that were like, Man, I, if I was just picking, I would not pick this chapter to preach on this morning. Uh, but that's where we're at today. And it's really been just a ride going through 1 Corinthians. And so if you're just joining us, let me catch you up to speed a little bit. So this letter was written by a guy named Paul to a church in the Roman city of Corinth. And Paul started this church some years ago, and it was spinning out of control now. And it, it, was, it was a hot mess, okay? I don't know how else to describe it. It was a hot mess. Uh, these people were trying to figure out 
how to live the way that they used to live before they met Jesus and just sprinkle a little Jesus onto that way of life. And so we see a number of things that Paul addresses, a number of issues that he addresses with the church of Corinth. And just to give you a glimpse, here's just what we've hit so far in the church of Corinth. There's divisions and factions in the church, each competing for different power, influence, things like that. They were prizing Greek philosophy over the gospel of Jesus. So they were coming not so much with their Bibles as much as they were coming with Plato, other Greek philosophers saying, let's look at this. They were boasting in their spiritual superiority. So they were kind of walking around with their chests puffed out, talking about how spiritual they were. And then it really gets bad. They were celebrating a man's sexual relationship with his stepmother, right? So they were celebrating that, talking about that. They were suing one another over trivial issues. They were justifying their use of prostitutes. They were abstaining from sex within marriage. And they were divorcing, divorcing their spouses to become more spiritual, right? So listen, I know every church is messed up, but this is a new level of messed up, right? I mean, they are out of their minds. Can you imagine writing to a church like this? So most of us would have just sent that Michael Jordan meme, you know, the one that says, stop it, get some help. That's what we would have done. We would have just sent that and said, there, that's my letter of 1 Corinthians. But Paul actually deeply loves this church. And more than that, God loves his church. And so Paul, he is so patient in how he deals with them. And in fact, what's amazing is with all of these issues, he never once just says, hey, stop doing that. That's wrong. Stop doing that. He, even with no-brainer topics like Christians sleeping with prostitutes, he never just says, don't do that. Instead, he actually is patient and shapes for them the why. He kind of, in some ways, what I'd say, he kind of takes the long way around to get there. So that way they actually understand the ways that what they're believing, the ways they're seeing the world, all of those things are actually flowing out in opposition to Jesus. And so at this point in the letter, Paul's kind of shifted. He's, he's carefully responding to different points of contention he has with the Corinthian church. So the Corinthians had written to him a letter previously and basically defended all of these terrible things that they're doing as Christian. And Paul now is kind of responding one by one and going through. And for the next three chapters, Paul is going to focus on a topic that seems foreign to us, but actually is real, more relevant than we think. And that's idolatry or worshiping false gods. Now, I know what you're thinking. Really? We're going to talk about worshiping idols? I don't think I struggle with that. So Facebook time for me for the next little bit. Um, it's it, most, if not all of us, didn't grow up in a context that encouraged idol worship. Right now, it would be different if we grew up in a more Hindu, Buddhist, animistic context that you can see in like Asia and Africa, but we live in the West. And so, it, it, so we often want to kind of skip over these things, but God actually has something for us here. Even though we don't live in a polytheistic culture, idol worship is all around us. Idol worship is all around us. 
Idolatry is when anything competes for the affection of our hearts over God himself. So here's the reality. Something is ultimate in your heart. Something receives your worship and devotion. And just like in Paul's day, there are many gods today and there are many lords. All over our country, you can find people bowing down to the God of self, to the God of marriage, to the God of singleness, to the God of family, to the God of freedom. There are even temples all over our city to the God of food and the God of consumerism, the God of pleasure, the God of money, the God of sports. And every day, people make sacrifices for the God of sex and the God of comfort, the God of power, the God of success, the God of image. Now, we may see those things and think, we're not worshiping those things. We don't light incense and bow down to those things. But here's the reality. For many of us, we're enslaved to gods like these. We sacrifice to these gods. We sing the praises of these gods. And we give our lives to these gods. We may not call it worship, but that's exactly what the Bible's gonna call it. See, our hearts are bent towards worship. In some cultures... That looks like praying to a little statue for safety and security. In our culture, it looks like lining our pockets and enlarging our bank accounts for safety and security. They both have the same root. They both have the same heart behind them. But in the West, we've convinced ourselves that ours isn't spiritual. So yes, every one of us actually deals with the reality of idolatry We're just often blind to its activity and influence in our lives. And so Paul wants to awaken us to this reality that there are gods all around us competing for our attention and competing for our affection. And so Paul, he begins this chapter in chapter 8. He says this, Now, concerning food offered to idols... Now, before we go on further, I just want to help shape some context of what's going on here. So there's two important things to know. So in Paul's day, Paul's specifically talking about food sacrificed to idols. So this is meat of animals that have been sacrificed to pagan gods. And in Paul's day, almost all meat came from pagan sacrifices. So if you went to the market and bought meat, or you went to a temple, if you were eating meat, it was safe to assume this meat was at one point in time sacrificed by a pagan priest. The second thing to realize is that pagan temples were really central in kind of Roman society, and they served meals for many different occasions, usually kind of mixing social and religious uh, reasons. So birthday parties, wedding receptions, other special occasions were often held in these Roman temples. And so if you had any social standing in a city, maybe you ran a business, you probably frequently attended temples for different meetings or feasts or things like that. And while these gatherings may have been primarily social, there were religious contexts over them, and it was the assumption that by participating in this, it was an act of worship. 
Now here's what I want you to see. Some in the Corinthian church were eating meat, not just offered to idols, like from the market, which Paul's specifically going to address in chapter 10, but these people were going to the pagan temples and eating meat as an act of idol worship. And so in verse 10, listen, it says, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple. So he's saying, look, these people, these Christians are eating food. They're actively participating in idolatry. And they were encouraging others in the church to join them, even if those people had major moral qualms with it. And worst of all, they defended it as a right of theirs to be able to do that. Now, how in the world does this work? How were they thinking? So Paul actually quotes the Corinthians a few times in this letter, and we get an idea of why they thought this was okay. And there's three things that Paul quotes from them. So the first thing is in verse 1, where he quotes them as saying, all of us possess knowledge. All of us possess knowledge. And what they meant by this was a few things, but mainly we are spiritually mature. Like we are theologically tuned in. We have theological reason behind this. We're mature. We're not just running after other things. All of us possess knowledge. The second thing an idol has no real existence. This is from verse four. An idol has no real existence. So here's what they're saying. They're saying false gods actually don't exist. There's no, there's no being there. And then the third thing they say, there's no God but one. So again, they're saying, hey, this is like the core confession of our faith. There's only one God. There is and can only be one God. So here's how their argument is all put together. The Bible teaches there's only one God. These Roman gods don't really exist. So all of these pagan rituals are offered to beings that aren't real. So they may think that they're worshiping a God, but they're simply butchering an animal and eating it. So as long as Christians have this knowledge, as long as they aren't engaging the ceremony in their heart as an act of worship, they can engage in it. In other words, this is a Christian argument for idolatry. Welcome to the church of Corinth. And as a side note, isn't it interesting that they took this kind of naturalistic, materialistic argument, which is typically how we defend our idolatry today. They took the spiritual out of it. They said, nothing spiritual is going on here. Even if other people see that or think that, nothing really is going on here. It's just eating meat. And so maybe this passage actually was intended for people just like us. And so what does Paul want to say about this? Well, three things from this passage. The first thing I want to see, idolatry always costs us something. Idolatry always costs us something. Now, Paul could just say, stop it, right? He could just say, hey, you know the Bible forbids idolatry, right? Like in the first commandment, right? Don't worship other gods. Like this is just Christianity 101. But he starts off not with theological debate, but instead he actually peers and exposes the deeper issue and in some ways even points to the real God that they're worshiping, knowledge. Okay? So read it with me, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1 through 3. Now concerning food offered to idols... 
we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And so Paul immediately cuts through all the posturing, all the false spirituality, all the defensiveness, and he points his finger right at the problem that they worshiped the God of knowledge. And he's going to show us this truth that's true of every God, and that's this. Every God demands sacrifice. Every God demands sacrifice. And in this case, as with most false gods, the Corinthians had to sacrifice love in order to worship knowledge. You see, they didn't consider how their actions affected others. They had taken love out of this equation altogether, and all they could see was their knowledge and their rights. So before we even get to idol food, before we even get to the fact that they're going to pagan temples, Paul has to stop and point out what their idolatry is doing to them. And let me just say this, maybe you don't worship the God of knowledge, maybe that's not a struggle for you, maybe for you it's greed or politics or success, but regardless, this helps us know what idolatry looks like today and the way that it leads us from Jesus. So a couple of things he speaks about this worshiping of the God of knowledge. The first thing, idolatry costs them true spiritual maturity. So the Corinthians boasted in their knowledge, and you can hear it in their tone, right? All of us possess knowledge. We're there. We've arrived. And Paul says that this knowledge actually puffs them up, that they thought they had attained this height of knowledge, and it made them think that they were spiritually superior. They thought that the more they knew about God, the more that they knew about theology and the Bible, the more spiritual they were. And Paul, who arguably is the most intellectual person to write in the Bible, he says that knowledge actually can't reveal a person's spiritual states. In fact, later on in 1 Corinthians, he says, if I understand all mysteries in all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. And that's similar to what he says here. If anyone imagines that he knows something, if anyone's seeking after knowledge apart from love, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So I've known many people in my life who have based their relationship with God on their knowledge. In other words, they read theology books, they studied their Bibles, they impressed other people with their understanding. In fact, they probably could preach the Bible better than me or could go teach a class at some seminary. But do you know what? They were spiritually immature. Or in some cases, they weren't even followers of Jesus. They had substituted facts for faith. Klein Snodgrass, he puts it this way, which I think just sums it up perfectly, this idea. He says, agreeing with Christian ideas and goals does not make one a Christian. It makes one merely an admirer of Christianity. Now hear me, knowledge is not a bad thing. 
That would misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Rather, knowledge can't measure maturity. I could put before you a respected biblical theology professor who's written some book on ecclesiology, and I could put another guy before you who's a blue-collar construction worker who couldn't tell you what ecclesiology means if his life depended on it. And just based on their knowledge, you would not be able to tell me who's faithful or not, who's spiritual or not, who's mature or not. You couldn't tell me that based on their knowledge. You can't judge a person's spiritual maturity on what he knows. You can judge him on how he loves. And that's Paul's point. They had forgotten that what matters most is not what you know, but whether you are known by God. Right? That's what he says. He's like, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. The knowledge they should seek is not just this filling of their heads, but actually being known and loved by God. To be more mature, they sought more knowledge, and they forgot the most basic of God's commands, to love him and to love our neighbors. They were aiming for the wrong thing, and because of that, they thought maturity was found somewhere else. You see, idols have a way of twisting what we're aiming for. They have a way of convincing us that we're on the right path when we're far from it. And it was doing that to them. The second thing is idolatry cost them their relationships. When knowledge became ultimate for them, it fed their ego with pride. See, some people use knowledge to gain praise and accolades as a means to climb the social ladder, a way to gain influence. In other words, knowledge, the worship of knowledge can become the worship of ourselves. And as a result, these people were sacrificing the faith of their friends to worship their knowledge. Knowledge became about themselves instead of a means to worship God and to serve others. In fact, later on in verse 11, Paul, he says, by your knowledge, these weak persons, these people in the church are being destroyed. True love and true knowledge actually go hand in hand. You see, knowledge and love are not enemies. They're actually connected. And we can't love rightly what we don't know, and we can't truly know something, the deep, intimate, powerful kind of knowing, until we love. And true knowledge of God leads to love for him and others. So here's the deal, is that according to Jesus, love is the definitive marker of a follower of Jesus. And what happens is, when we begin to place our hope and our trust and our things outside of God, in these other things, whether it be knowledge, whether it be little statues, whether it be something else, whatever that is for you, what happens is, we begin turning that love out away from God and others into ourselves. We become twisted. We miss the point entirely. False worship, here's the deal. False worship, idolatry, whatever you want to call it, always costs something. It always affects us. It's not a morally neutral thing. The problem is that when we give our lives to something other than Jesus, that false God always promises that it's not going to cost hardly anything. That 
It will cost way less than a life devoted to Jesus. But in reality, every God demands our life and wreaks destruction behind us if it's not the God of the Bible. Second thing. So idolatry always costs something. Second, behind all idolatry is spiritual evil. Behind all idolatry is spiritual evil. So Paul continues, and he kind of gets back to the issue at hand, right? Paul in this chapter, sorry, he's just all over the place because he's just talking. He's like, hey, we know we all possess knowledge. Let me just stop and tell you something about that real quick. And he's like, all right, now let's talk about idols again. And then he's like, let me just tell you something else. He's just kind of going back and forth with stuff. But he gets back to the issue at hand, eating food, sacrificed to idols in pagan temples. And he doesn't want them to misunderstand like, hey, Actually, some of what you're saying is true. Like, yeah, idols don't actually exist. Uh, Yes, there is only one God. But they were blind to the spiritual realities behind these practices. And so read it with me in verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol is no real existence. And that there is no God but one. Again, he's quoting them. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Now, let me just pause a second. Verse 5 is really interesting. Because he he just said these idols don't exist. And then he said, although there may be so-called gods. And in a lot of translations, it says, Uh, most translations, actually, it says, even if there are so-called gods. And there's this way that Paul almost seems to be saying they don't exist, but they do exist. Like, what is he getting at? Well, it's not fully apparent here, but in just a couple chapters, he's going to make it much clearer what he's saying here. So in 1 Corinthians 10, 19 through 20, listen to what he says. He's talking about the same thing. And he says this, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. In other words, while the God of the Bible is the one true God, that doesn't discount the fact that there are other supernatural beings in the universe. In fact, the so-called gods that the pagans worshipped were demons. And there are many such gods and many such lords. The Corinthians took this really natural approach, these sacrifices, and it's just butchering an animal, not worship, and they didn't realize that there are evil spirits at work behind what they're doing. And again, here's, here's the point of this is that we tend to, in our culture, and the Corinthians did this too, empty the spiritual realities out of everything. We forget that there is actually an enemy that wants to enslave us and destroy us. And he will use whatever means necessary to lead us away from Jesus. Again, we think that we can run after all of these things and give our hearts to it without it affecting us, without seeing that there are spiritual realities behind these things that we're doing. That we have to be aware that there are actually demons seeking to influence us, 
our worldview, our hearts, our love, and our faith. And the Corinthians failed to see that. They failed to see that, hey, when you're going and worshiping these idols, demons are influencing you. They're shaping the way that you see the world. They're trying to destroy you. But even in the midst of all of that danger, Paul reminds us that our God is greater, that our God reigns over all. So he goes on, he says, although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Everything comes from God, belongs to him. Even these spirits, even these demons that are seeking to destroy, God with a word could put them away, can end them. Though there are many spirits in the universe claiming for our worship and claiming to be God, they are not equal with God. This is not some dualism, some war where good and evil are kind of balanced and fighting each other out. No, God sits in heaven and he laughs at his enemies. He laughs at them trying to oppose him and trying to change things. God is in control. And we ourselves don't exist, or we ourselves exist for God and through him. There's only one God who made us, who sustains us, who keeps us, who knows us, who loves us. We don't have to fear. Again, this is a call to lay aside all those other things we're running to and recognize the influence behind the gods that we worship. And instead, we're encouraged to give our lives wholly to God. Last thing I want you to see, third thing, don't become a stumbling block to the weak. Don't become a stumbling block to the weak. So Paul continues in verse 7. He says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So in other words, he's like, hey, there are some people who recognize deep in their souls that they're like, hey, this is wrong. This is wrong. Their conscience is bearing witness that they should not do this. And by partaking in it, it would be like an act of worship for them because of their previous life. And we'll talk more about that in a minute, but. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Food's not a moral thing. It's not going to make God love you more. Verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. 
Thus, sitting against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Okay, there's a lot going on here. So Paul wades into language around conscience. And normally these passages in Scripture are centered around morally neutral topics, right? So like, for instance, in Romans 14, you have Paul talking about being a vegetarian or celebrating certain holidays. But here, what's interesting is Paul uses this language around something that he emphatically believes is absolutely morally wrong. Engaging in pagan worship practices. So why is Paul doing this? Well, again, as I said in the beginning, Paul's taking the long way around. What Paul's doing here is essentially saying, hey, even if this was up for debate, even if eating in a pagan temple was a morally neutral topic, you still shouldn't do it because of love. Now, conscience here is not like Jiminy Cricket and not like, you know, the little angel and demon on your shoulders that are kind of like competing and talking to you. Um, instead, the Greek word here actually carries the idea of just like self-awareness. And uh, uh, in their great book called Conscience, uh, Andrew Nacelli and J.D. Crowley, they define conscience as this. Your consciousness, your awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. Your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. In other words, you're aware of what you think is morally good or morally evil. Now, in general, in general, the way that Scripture is going to talk about this is that you should, unless it goes against what God says, obey your conscience. So unless God specifically outlines something, unless to obey your conscience would be to sin against what God says, you should obey it. And here's why. is because when we act against our conscience, that means we're doing something we believe is wrong. We're doing something that we believe is wrong. And to act in that way is sin. In fact, Paul later in, uh, in Romans is actually going to basically say that, hey, for you, even if it's not sin, for you, if you believe it's wrong and you do it, it is sin for you. And here's what happens, and here's the danger of what's going on, is God gave us a conscience to help us navigate a lot of things. It's, it, it's what Paul's referring to when the law is written on our hearts. And when our conscience is saying, stop, 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 wrong, 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 and we go, be quiet. I'm going to do that anyway. What happens is we start getting broken inside. So if you've, and I, and I guarantee you, you've probably experienced this before. You've probably had times where inwardly, maybe it's with pornography, maybe it's with some other act that you've done. Maybe this is how all adultery ends up happening is there's the little moments inside us that say, hey, this is wrong. And we make a choice to silence our conscience. And what happens over time is that voice gets quieter and quieter and quieter. 
eventually we don't even feel bad anymore. Eventually, we're willing to cross lines we never thought we would cross because our conscience has now been silenced. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Is he's picking up on this idea that what's happening while they're encouraging these people to sin against their conscience is he's like, there is a danger that they will be destroyed. And what he means by that is that they're going to walk away from the faith entirely. That these people, the weak is what he calls them, is that they're going to get to the place where they actually think idol worship is compatible with Christianity. And eventually, and again, these are people, listen, who worshipped pagan idols before, right? They've rubbed shoulders with this. They have a tendency towards that. And so for them to fall back into it, they're easily could be led astray. The language he uses is so strong. He talks about them being defiled, destroyed, and wounded. And the Corinthians that were just going in the pagan temples didn't care. They didn't care. Again, we're not talking about just putting others in an uncomfortable position, but doing something that actively leads someone from the faith. So again, in that book called Conscience, those authors say this, the concern here is not merely that your freedom may irritate, annoy, or offend your weaker brother or sister. If a brother or sister simply doesn't like your freedoms, that is their problem. But if your practice of freedom leads your brother or sister to sin against their conscience, then it becomes your problem. Christ gave up his life for that brother or sister. Are you unwilling to give up your freedom if that would help your fellow believer avoid sinning against conscience? So, Three kind of just big, I think, big, big ideas out of this last section that I think is helpful. We could literally have spent the whole sermon on the end here, so I feel like I'm just flying through, but three, three big, I think, big ideas here. First, don't encourage another, don't encourage someone else to sin against their conscience. One of the things in particular in Romans that Paul is going to be so helpful is when the issue is morally neutral, and again, in this, this isn't a moral neutral issue with, uh, with idolatry, but when the issue is morally neutral, he says, hey, you actually should welcome one another. Like, you shouldn't fight and try to get the, you shouldn't judge someone else or look down on someone else because their conscience differs from you. And all too often what happens is we can mock other people we can judge other people. We can look down on other people because their conscience is different. And Paul encourages us to welcome one another and to assume the best of one another unless what they're doing is contrary to Scripture. And here's what that requires of us. We have to sacrifice our need to be right. We have to sacrifice our need to be right. Like Paul, especially in Romans, is going to be like, hey, I actually think you're right, but you have to lay that down to love your neighbor. You have to welcome one another. So uh, second thing, we need to know each other's story. We need to know each other's story. 
So Paul here is specifically addressing how these people spent years worshiping idols. They had this association with idols, and they had a heightened temptation to fall back under its power. Now, like, this is, I, I feel like there's a similar example that we can think of even just with alcohol, with alcoholism. And some, someone with a previous history of alcoholism might approach this issue differently than someone who's never dealt with it. They have intimately known the power, the enslaving power that alcoholism had in their life. And in the same way, the implication is here that like not only someone who's experienced this, but someone who's a new believer is more vulnerable towards turning away from Christ. And here's the point. Do we know each other well enough to know our consciences, to know where we come from, to know our story, to know the idols that we rubbed shoulders with before Jesus? Like we need to know each other so we can love each other well. And the last thing under this is that love always trumps rights. Love always trumps rights. The way of Jesus requires us to lay down our rights and our freedoms. In fact, chapter 9, we're about to get, Paul basically spends the whole chapter talking about that. And uh, we shouldn't lay strict kind of laws one way or the other, but here's the key question. Are we seeking to build up our brothers and sisters? Are we willing to lay down our rights? I mean, Paul even goes so far, again, he's using kind of extreme language, but he even goes so far as to say, hey, listen, if me eating any meat causes a brother to stumble, I'll just be a vegetarian. Like, and he's like, because the heart of what we're trying to do is to love because Jesus has loved us. And so where do we go from here as we close this? Just a couple things. First thing, we, we have to flee from idolatry. We have to flee from idolatry. In this letter, there are two issues that Paul gives kind of the, the strongest warnings against, and that's sexual immorality and idolatry. Both powerfully shape our hearts and threaten to enslave us. And many of us in the church, we feel and see the dangers of the first one, but we ignore the dangers of the second. And the reality is that we're all idolaters. We all run after things other than God. And so how do we flee from this? By fixing our eyes on Jesus. Amen. On the one true God, the one true Lord. Here's what's amazing. Every God demands sacrifice and enslaves. But in the gospel, God himself makes the sacrifice. Jesus comes to earth, he lives a life for us, and he offers his life and lays down his life for us to rescue us and to bring us freedom, not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. And so today, like, we should all turn to Jesus, to cling to him, to lay aside all of those other things that we're running to and to trust in him. And the last thing is, let's follow Jesus in the way of love. Again, it's so astounding to me that Paul is talking to Christians who are actively worshiping in pagan temples, 
And his biggest concern is their lack of love. Like, and that's because Paul had been transformed by the love of Jesus. Jesus had every right in the world. He could have left us to ourselves. He could have judged us all. But instead, Jesus laid down his rights and became a man. And he laid down rights even more and became poor and homeless. And he laid down even more further and sacrificed his life for his friends because of love. So may we be shaped by the same love that Jesus had. Would you stand with me?